morning, everyone. Hopefully that inspires you to think about attending that ladies' small group on Wednesday mornings. Uh, we are in the book of John. And in the book of John, we are looking at the life of Christ. In particular, we are seeing how Jesus is the overcoming God King. That everything that he is doing in his ministry is to overcome sin, death, and the devil. It is to overcome our own weaknesses. It is to overcome the evil of this world, the stress and agony of this world, the sickness of the world, and the sin of the world. And we're going to see every week how this is built upon each other, how we can then have trust and confidence and faith that who Jesus Christ says he is and how he's witnessed by the others can encourage us to live strongly for him. And uh, we've been going through the first chapter, obviously it's the first chapter, in the first 18 verses which we looked at on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, we see this general understanding and statement about who Christ is, about his deity, about his incarnation, and his redemptive mission in the world. He is God, and he is the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, and he came to save those who could not save themselves by offering himself as a sacrifice. And those that believe that he is who he says he is and did what he said he accomplished, those who believe that are entitled and granted a relationship with the Father as one of his children, sons and daughters of God. And those first 18 verses communicate the real heart and message of the book of John, that Jesus Christ came to do this to overcome those things that we could not do ourselves, which includes salvation. You cannot save yourself. You can't. There is nothing you can do to earn and merit God's favor because he requires a standard that you cannot live up to. And what's the standard? Perfect holiness, perfection. And you cannot, on your best day, even though you have deluded yourself to think that you are perfect, you're not. On your best day, you sin against God and you live unholy lives. So to overcome that, Jesus needed to come and live that life for us. And then we saw last week in the next section of verses 19 through 34, we saw the entrance of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, the one who noticed and recognized this person coming in is, is not, not normal. He's different. He's unique. And in fact, John declares as he's baptizing Jesus, he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognized this is the Messiah, and he's not worthy to even untie his sandals and clean his feet. John realizes that the difference between him and Christ is a huge gulf that he cannot overcome. He cannot establish a relationship with someone so holy. But Jesus, in the business of overcoming, can overcome John's unholiness and make them a matched relationship as brother in Christ. And this morning, we are going to see, basically, how the New Testament church started. 
and how it continues to this day. And I know you've had that question before. How did all this start? Now, we have all the Old Testament and lots of stories and lots of promises, and Jesus fulfills those promises. But how did the, the church start to where we got 2,000-some years later? We're sitting here today at Calvary Church in Pueblo, Colorado, which was not in the mindset of any of the Israelites living during the days of Christ. How did it get to this point? How did it get to the point that you give up your Sunday morning to come to a building and sing songs and listen to God's word, sometimes be convicted by it, sometimes be encouraged by it, but nonetheless you go out changed because you were face to face with the holy God during the entirety of the service, the singing and the preaching. How did it get to this point? And I think a more important question is how do we make sure that we are on track for the future generations? Because it does not take a rocket scientist to look at this world, just to listen to the news on one day and realize that's normal, it just creaks, it's the wind, super normal, it's not falling. <laughs> as far as I know. I think the further you sit back, the more challenging that wind becomes on the, I'm just saying, sitting up front, you're probably pretty safe. <laughs> oh, there was something I was saying that had nothing to do, it was really spiritual at the moment, right? John, let's just get to First John, oh, First John, John chapter one, starting in verse 35, because this gives us the hint and the key to how the New Testament church started and how we need to set the future ahead of us. It's the same method, the same process, the same goal, the same Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the New Testament time as it is today. So his method of how does the church start and function is super important because it's our message that we need to carry on to the next generation. And it starts with this recognition of who Jesus is and then responding to this recognition. Starting in verse 35 of John chapter 1, the next day, again, John, and we're talking about John the Baptist at this moment, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. So he's still at the Jordan River, still on the other side of the Jordan River in Bethany. He's still baptizing people that are coming to him from Jerusalem and around Israel. And he notices, as he's standing there still doing this with some of his disciples, he notices, looks at Jesus as he walked by and said, for the second time, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is a Hebrew word that means teacher. Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or right around four o'clock in the afternoon. Really an interesting event occurs here with these two disciples, who's Andrew and John, the Apostle John, who wrote the letter. Now, John is very John is very humble, and I believe it's a true humility. He never mentions himself as he's writing the letter, or this, in this case, the Gospel of John. It always is sort of alluded to, like, 
the other disciple went with him or the disciple that Jesus loved. He never mentions himself by name. So when he talks about Andrew and another disciple with him, he's talking about himself. So Andrew and John were following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, that's the guy right there. Here he is again, the second day in the row. I've seen him. He's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And they immediately, they leave John the Baptist. How long have they been with John the Baptist, part of his disciples? Who knows? But something more important has come along, more revolutionary than even John the Baptist baptizing Israelites for the repentance of sin with water. Something more important, the Messiah. And they started following him. Now, I would imagine if most of us recognize as we're walking down the street, some people following us that we have never met, every turn we make, they turn everywhere. You know, every shop we go into, they go into, and they're just staring at us. I imagine our question is also going to be, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? You know, are you following me? And that's Jesus' natural response. Hey, what are you two doing? And they say, hey, teacher, rabbi, where are you staying? And he says, well, I'm staying here. They go with him. It's late in the day. They spend the night. They're hooked at that moment. You see, they had been waiting all their life, which may not have been more than 20 or 30 years at this point, but they had waited their lifetime for the Messiah. And if this was their chance to see history fulfilled and promises fulfilled, they were going to be there. And we did not have an opportunity last week to pick up on this phrase, Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. But this morning, I want us to have clarity and certainty that when we think of Jesus, we think of Isaiah chapter 53. It is an amazing chapter. I have uh, an entire four-part sermon series on this chapter, but I just want to read these verses and have it sit in the back of our mind as we go through not only this chapter, chapter 1, but as we go through the entirety of John. This is what he's overcoming, and this is what he did. This is what it cost. This is how humiliating. The process was for Jesus. For in Isaiah chapter 53, and I'm going to read from verse 4 uh, through the end of the chapter. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen to how Isaiah describes Jesus Christ. And it is so reassuring. And it is so, at times, depressing what he had to go through. But it is Let me just read it. Surely, for certain, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And all of we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what it means to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like sheep before its shearers is silent, 
So he opened not his mouth. He didn't complain about what he was going through. All of that sin and punishment and humiliation he went through, he didn't say, this is unfair. Why me? I'm not the guilty one. Someone else is guilty. I'm innocent. He never cried out, revenge. He knew what he had come to do. He had come to take our sins and bear the filthy penalty of being a liar, a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, an idolater, someone who was envious and prideful. All of our sins he took upon himself, and he did it without complaint. I have no idea how he was able to do that, because I am able to complain. Believe this or not, I am really good at complaining. I have, I mean, there are, there are several things that I'm really good at in life, but one of those that I just kind of always hold on in my back pocket is judging people. I can judge people. And complaining. Complaining. Jesus took that fault and weakness of mine and of yours and overcame it as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He continues and say, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the will of Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see the offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Multiple times, in that chapter, multiple times, we're told about the suffering that he went through and how quiet he was and how unfair it was, but he didn't raise objection. And he bore our sins. He was led to the cross to be slaughtered, to be crushed, to have that anguish of our sin upon him. But he would see a day where the Father rescued him from that death and showed him an inheritance showed him something beautiful, something that he would never be able to, or that we would never be able to obtain, a righteousness. You are his inheritance. You are the prize at the end of all of that work. You are who he redeemed upon that cross. You are, even in your sinfulness, precious to God to the point he wanted to send his son to be crushed by the weight of your sin, to bear it himself 
so that he would have a day of heavenly rejoicing when you came to be with him, when you breathed your last breath. That is but a small slice of what it means that Jesus, behold, see, look, gaze upon the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist recognized it. John's disciples heard him declare that. And what is their response to someone who can overcome sin? What is their response to someone who can fulfill the promises? What is their response to someone who can make them righteous? What's their response? Follow. I need to get close to this person. I need to be near this person. I need to be in front of them, behind them, next to them. I need to be carried by them. I need to be loved by them, taught by them. I need to be associated with him. They left everything. They left everything to begin with when they left for John the Baptist, but they left everything they had and followed Jesus. It doesn't stop there because in the next few verses, there's another response that people have, not only recognizing who he is, knowing who he is, but following him. But there's a third thing that happens that is vital to the New Testament church's growth, prosperity, and presence in this world, and that is telling others about him. John the Baptist had already done that, saw him walking and knew that his ministry was on the decline and he was okay with that because he pointed everybody to Jesus saying, follow him, he's the lamb, he's the promised one, he is the Messiah. And so this is the third response that John and Andrew, the first two disciples, had to Jesus. Verse 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak, and any time that John writes that, we're talking about, okay, so John actually said to Jesus, followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, <laughs> which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall now be called Cephas, which means Peter. I can't imagine how excited John the Apostle and Andrew the Apostle, the first disciples of Jesus, were to tell people. They knew who Jesus was. They had a certainty about him that they declared to Peter that we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. At this point, I always like to put out a little bit of historical reference. Jesus is Jesus' name, Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. It's more of a Greek equivalent to the name Joshua in the Old Testament, Yahweh saves. And his last name is not Christ. It's not Jesus Christ, first and last name. Christ is his title. Christ is what he is to the world. Christ, the anointed one. Now, Christ is a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word that means anointed one. And everyone in the Old Testament knew who the Messiah was. 
the anointed one, the one that God appointed to take care of our sin. They didn't know how it was going to happen. They saw allusions to it. They had no clue that he was going to overcome everything that he overcame and no clue that he was going to be God-man in visible flesh. But they knew that God was going to send someone really special, someone really different, not like us, to take care of the problem that we're all plagued with our own self-importance over others, including over God, our self-confidence that we can do it. It's our sin, our pride, our envy, our jealousy. Whatever sin we may be struggling with, God came to overrule and overcome the nature of it through Christ. And he's recognized as that. And there are a lot of commentaries that pontificate great number of chapters and pages about why Jesus changed Peter's name. It doesn't say why. It just simply says he did it. For some particular reason, uh, maybe it was because the name Simon means flat-nosed. You know, kind of a squishy nose. I have no idea, but he called him The Rock. The first person to be known as The Rock. And I see some understanding of why Peter has that unique name because he has this bold pronunciation of Christ being the foundation to everything Peter ever did. So he was settled and steadied. But imagine meeting someone for the first time and they go, oh, what's your name? Uh, Bob. Ah, from now on, it's Ted. <laughs> oh, your name's Kim? Uh, from now on, it's Tammy. And Peter doesn't object. He knows and, and feels something different and unique. He recognizes what Andrew and John recognized. This is not a mere man. This is not a mere teacher. And they haven't fully understood that because they haven't walked with him for three years yet. But they're starting that process and they're telling other people about it. And to reinforce the first three points of this is what happens when you're confronted with Christ. You recognize him, you follow him, and you tell others about him. We have something very similar happening at the very end of the chapter, verses 41 through 52, uh, 51, excuse me, or 50, 43 through 51. It's right there on the screen. I should be able to read that. We have another description of what it's like to follow Jesus. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So now he's in Bethany, which is way, way on the south end of all of the promised land by the Dead Sea. And he's going all the way up to Galilee, way up in the north, the northern part of Israel. That's a, that could be a solid week to 10 days of walking. So they're, they're, they're hoofing it, but they're making their way across Israel uh, at some point, they crossed the Jordan River in order to get to the other side, in order to get to the western side of Israel. Um, but they're, they're making their way during those first seven to ten days of walking. They had no public transportation, no cars. They wanted to get from one place to another. They walked. And they did not feel that walking 50, 60 miles was going to be a bad thing for them. So they walked. And uh, as they're going up to Galilee, he found Philip and said, follow me. 
That is Jesus. Finds this guy just sitting over there, standing over there, doing something over there. We see in other Gospels, they may have been fishing. And he says, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So one of the farthest reaches of that, that geographical area. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida and uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Nathanael's first response is, uh, excuse me, Philip's first response is after being told by Jesus, follow me, he's going to make him fishers of men, he goes and tells other people, oh, Nathanael, you need to check this guy out. He is the promised one that Moses talked about, that the law talked about, that the prophets talked about. He is the anointed one, the Lamb of God, who will be led to execution silently and without objection, without fussing, without complaining, willingly take on our sin. Now, they may not have understood it in all that clarity, but they knew that Jesus was their hope to get out of the cycle of sin and estrangement from a relationship with God. They knew he was the one to make it right. So how does Nathaniel respond to this? Like a typical guy. Can anything really good come out of Nazareth? I mean, come on, we know where this guy's from. The guy's from the east side. No, 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 no. <clears throat> Dog patch. Now, some of you may have connected with that. Or as we would say, ah, they're from Trinidad. Can anything good come out of Trinidad? Or if you live anywhere else in the country, you go, can anything good come out of New Jersey? Really? You're from New Jersey? Eh. So we all have those places in our mind where we go, oh, that's where you're from? Oh, okay. I guess that happens. People can live there, and I guess something good can come out of there. But Nazareth was really known in Israel as the armpit of Israel. They were Israelites, yes, but eh, we're not going to go vacationing there. Why? Well, it's Nazareth. Now, I've never been to Nazareth, but I imagine it's pretty much like the rest of Israel, just flat desert. I mean, I don't know why you could be proud of one part of the desert and not part of the other. And, and people are shaking their head. I guess maybe Nazareth is not a desert. I don't know. That's how much I don't know about Nazareth. But if, uh, if these guys looked at it and said, eh, not too sure I want to drive through there at night, I think we should probably realize it probably wasn't a really good place, a good reputation. Because obviously, right away, he knew, uh-uh. I'm not going to follow some guy with that funny accent, dresses that funny way, eats that funny food, and is from that funny place with streets and names of roads I can't even pronounce. Why would I want to be associated with someone from Nazareth? Why? And then Philip said to him in that verse 46, come and see. Doesn't answer any objection, but you need to see this guy. You need to meet him. You need to be confronted with what we were confronted with, his presence. His nature, his character, who he was as the appointed, anointed one who was going to save them from their sin. You need to see this guy. Whatever you think about where he's from, don't judge him. See. That was all Philip had to say. Philip didn't have to have this long list of why Jesus was great to go witness to or great to go see. He just simply said, come and see him. 
He's going to do all that work for you. I don't have anything to really tell you. Just see him. Experience him. Come face to face with who he is. And so in verse 47, Jesus sees, uh, saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold the Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. See, Nathanael was known as um, a zealot. Someone who was very passionate, very passionate for the independence of Israel over Rome. He was a patriot. He wanted nothing more. And several of the disciples were like this. They wanted nothing more than for Israel to be an independent nation like it used to be under David and Samuel. Enough of these foreign people trying to control them. He, Jesus recognizes this guy has a heart for Israel. What Philip is going to say, he's going to say, in him there is no deceit. He's not going to pull punches. He's not going to lie. He may not know how to communicate it in love, but he's definitely going to communicate it. You're going to know exactly where Philip stands. And so Jesus declares that. And Nathanael says to him in verse 48, How do you know me? What do you say? I mean, okay, you're already from Nazareth. you got to strike against you. And now you tell me that I'm an uh, Israelite of Israelites, that I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm going to be truthful and honest. I've never met you before. How do you know me? Who are you? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you. So obviously, Jesus had some sort of vision of Philip going and confronting Nathanael and telling him to come. And wherever Philip was, or Nathanael was, he was sitting under a fig tree. How, how Jesus knew that? Well, he's the God-man, Jesus Christ. So he, he knows things that we possibly can't know. It's not a magic trick, and it's not guessing. God revealed it to him. He knew it. And so Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe me? So do you see, see what's happening here? Jesus recognizes Nathanael, points out something about him. You're a true Israelite. In you there is no deceit. How do you know me, Jesus? Well, I saw you under a fig tree. Oh, I now believe that you are the son of God. What? You are the son of God. See, there is more that is happening here in Nathaniel's heart than just simply this coincidence that Jesus could figure out where I was sitting. He recognizes there is something about him that is not normal, that he's never encountered before, that's unique. Just like we encounter Jesus who is not normal. He's not like us, but he is like us. He's not like us in our sin and deceit, but he is like us in that he is human. He knows our frailty. And he could die. He could suffer for our sins. So he declares that you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. You, do you believe me? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's almost like Jesus was uh, doing an opening magic act and he just simply showed him a 
coin trick of moving it from one hand to another. And Nathanael was wildly impressed and said, I need to follow you. And Jesus says, you've got no clue that I can make the Statue of Liberty actually disappear. You've got no idea that I can stop the sun in its rotation. You have no idea that I can breathe life back into a dead body. You've got no clue how many people I can feed with just a basket of a few fish and a few loaves of bread. You've got no idea that I will walk on water. You have no clue that I will tell a storm that you're afraid of as mighty fishermen of the sea when I tell it to be calm and still and it obeys my voice. You will be blown out of your mind when I take a man who is possessed by a thousand demons and cast it out. You have no idea how mind-blowing it's going to be when you see and hear about my crucifixion and three days later, I will appear to you alive. And you have no idea how pleased the Father is on the day that you will have the privilege to see the Mount of Transfiguration where my glory is for but a brief moment fully revealed and Moses and the prophets worship me. But you've got no idea what you're going to see as you follow me. But you got to follow me. You have to follow me. You have to follow me. Those are the first five disciples. And from those first five disciples, it grew into 12, minus one, then one added, all the way to the point where we are sitting here today because people recognized who Jesus was, acknowledged who he was, rightfully declared he's the son of God, he's the king of his people Israel, and he is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. They recognized that about him. They followed him, and they told others about it. So many times that happened that we're here today because of it. Well, there is a responsibility that we have because being a disciple of Jesus requires two things. It is knowing the true nature of who he is, uncompromisingly declaring he is the son of God. He did not become a God. We will not become gods like him. He uniquely is the son of God. He is fully God and fully man with full infinite knowledge, wisdom, understanding, with full sovereignty, with full control. He is fully God. And we can never compromise on that nature. We can never say, well, it's not that big of a deal if you don't totally believe everything about Jesus. It is a totally big deal. You either accept him or you reject him. You can't accept parts of him. You can't be okay with some of the stuff, but not all of the stuff. He comes as only one package. And we believe that. And yes, sometimes it's really hard to grasp our feeble, finite minds around he, how we can be fully God and fully man, two persons, one nature. How is that, or two, two natures, one person? How is that possible? But it is truth. And we accept it. 
And then secondly, we respond with faith to follow him. We respond with faith to follow him. And following him has a whole another large segment of responsibilities that we have. One of those is telling others. So I have a, a couple real quick questions for you. Um, some real questions. Following Jesus means you have to give up a lot. You also get a lot. But you have to give up certain things that in this world we find pretty precious and special. And a lot of people try to strive for it and obtain it. And once they obtain it, they think they've reached success. But success is not measured, as we saw from Solomon, in the things of this world. Success is not based on money, value, importance, beauty, relationships, power. It's not based on that. It's based on, am I near God in a loving relationship where I follow him in all things? So here's a couple questions to keep in our mind as we're thinking about this role of discipleship, this role of believing who Jesus is, responding to him by faith, and then telling others, here are a few questions to keep in mind. Are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means losing your closest friends? Are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means alienation from your family? Are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means being ridiculed by the world? Are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means losing your retirement savings and income? Are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means losing your job? Are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means losing your life? I want to close by reading from Matthew chapter 16 what it looks like to follow Jesus as a disciple. Remember I said that there are beautiful things that Jesus says and communicates and we can, we can champion that and praise God for that and then there are some things that are difficult. Um, this is one of the difficult things. But it's true and it solidly confirms what it will cost you to follow Jesus as a disciple. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the world, think of Solomon, and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay, repay each person according to what he has done. That's the cost of discipleship. Bearing the cross that Christ bore. Not for our sins, but for our relationship with God. It's going to cost us, potentially, every single comfort you have in this life. The early disciples were willing to count that cost and follow Christ regardless of what it would do to them. All of them, as far as we know, as history tells us, all of them were martyred except for John. 
and Judas. Judas is an exception. But they all knew what it was like to be rejected. They all knew what it was like to be made fun of. They all knew what it was like to fail and be restored. And they all knew what it was like to see the glory of God revealed in Christ. And that was so exciting. Not to just see the miracles, but to see the evidence that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Do you want to follow that God? Do you want to follow that Lamb? Do you want to follow him, not just for the glorious things, but even what it will cost you? There is great satisfaction and reward in following Christ. And it starts with eternal life. It starts with a, with a relationship with him. It starts with being confident and joyful and at peace in a world that is filled with tribulations and trials. He brings you the promise to overcome everything in your life. Let's pray. And the band can come up. Our gracious Lord and Savior, thank you for the wisdom that you're expressing in these words. Help us, Father, to follow you, to count the cost and realize that it is not an easy believism, but that you will challenge us to give up everything to have a relationship with you. Because, Father, you already have given up everything in sending your Son to be our substitute and sacrifice upon the cross. Thank you, Father, for that relationship and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It is in his name all of God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and sing.